You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner, caretaker or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest. Welcome to the Let's Talk Strata podcast, a podcast uh, dealing with uh, strata issues across Queensland, issues that matter to lot owners, stakeholders and all those industry professionals that uh, have uh, much to do with uh, strata titling in Queensland. We have today our special guest, uh, Chris Irons, who's the Body Corporate Commissioner uh, in Queensland. Now, just a little bit about Chris. Uh, He has uh, over a decade of experience in leadership roles in Queensland government. Chris has a wealth of experience in areas as diverse as real estate, liquor and gaming, tourism policy and legislation, as well as, of course, his ongoing role as Commissioner for the Body Corporate and Community Management uh, Office which is, of course, part of the Department of Justice and Attorney General. As Commissioner, Chris leads a team of 30 officers in providing information and dispute resolution services to Queensland's uh, community title sector, a fairly large sector indeed. The Commissioner's Office has exclusive jurisdiction to resolve body corporate disputes, whilst its information arm serves to prevent disputes from escalating. In particular, Chris plays a very active role in engaging with the diverse stakeholders in this sector and is a regular presenter at body corporate seminars, forums and conferences. So welcome today, uh, Chris, and uh, great pleasure to have you on board to this uh, podcast interview. Thanks for having me, Mark. Fantastic. Now, um, as uh, Body Corporate Commissioner, um, how did you come to this role uh, Mm, in in your your, uh, (laughs) history there? In a a former life, Mark, uh, my job was in relation to making government policy and legislation. Had a lot to do with body corporate legislation uh, a little about a decade ago or so, Mark. And then in the intervening years, did a few different things. You, You touched on a few of them there in your opening kind of introduction. And then uh, sort of the came back around to become commissioner approximately four years ago, November of this year. Um, it's been a, an interesting time. It's an incredibly, as, as you've highlighted, it's been it's an incredibly diverse role. But more than that, dealing with an incredibly diverse group of people. I, I mean, I struggle to think of another sector of government that has uh, a group of such diverse stakeholders with such strongly held opinions. I mean, just you just look at the basics and you've got, on one hand, you've got owners and, and you've got committee members, you've got body corporate managers, you've got on-site managers, you've got real estate agents, you've got legal practitioners such as yourself... You've got developers, you've got financiers. All of those people come from very, very different perspectives. While sometimes their priorities overlap, Mm -hmm. um, more often than not, they do not. Um, And so it's within that context that my office exists. You've got all of these competing priorities. Everybody is after a different outcome, more or less. Um, And as you touched upon there at the start, we're talking about literally uh, half a million lots in Queensland Mm. and about 50,000 schemes. So if you like, we're trying to wrangle all of those vested interests all the time. Um, So back to your original question, how did I come to be there? I guess I have a fair reserve of patience, Mark. Right. (laughs) Look, it's uh, it's certainly a tremendous undertaking, uh, not only to manage such a a big office of uh, adjudicators, conciliators, admin staff, but also to manage those competing priorities. Uh, What what do you think are some of the challenges in meeting these different uh, outcomes and objectives that these stakeholders are seeking? Well, I think one of the biggest things, Mark, is the fact that all of what we do, all of the legislation and all that my office does is based around the idea that if you are living in or owning in or participating in a community title scheme in Queensland, the onus is upon you to manage things effectively for your own interest. The legislation actually says that. It talks about Mm. self-management. That's great and that's something that ideally everybody should do. Reality, as I think most people would know, is quite different in this context. Mm. So while it's assumed that people having spent a considerable amount of money to buy a lot 
for example, would then go the next step and play an active interest in participating in the decision-making processes which affect them, the reality is that many do not. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that, Mark. Mm. One of them may simply be that they've purchased the lot as an investment and so long as the investment is operating, the body corporate side of thing is less of a priority. But probably one of the other issues that uh, my office exists for is the fact that people don't know what they're meant to do. They don't know what their rights and responsibilities are. Therefore, they can't act upon them. Therefore, they don't feel empowered to participate. So in addition to all of those competing interests, in addition to the sheer size of things, the other issue that we deal with is just that knowledge gap. It's really complicated stuff, Mark. Uh, I mean, Mm. I'm I'm the first to admit that whenever I get the opportunity. Mm. Anyone who has seen body corporate legislation would know the sheer size of it. We're talking 300 pages. That's before we get on to the regulation modules. And then there are some real technicalities in there, Mark, Uh, concepts that most people would never have encountered before Mm. in their life. And then once they encounter them, there are invariably more concepts which relate to that as well. Uh, One of the great examples that I give to people about that sort of thing, I have adjudicators in my office who have been there 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. If they are sitting around having a robust discussion about the meaning and interpretation of a section of the Act, then, of course, for the average punter, that's going to be magnified. Mm. So my job, my office's job, is to find a way through that, Mark. Well, I was just going to ask you about the complexities of mm. the legislation and, and even some of the competing jurisdictions like, um, you know, the civil um, actions that can be spawned on, uh, you know, things like debt recovery mm. and, mm. Uh, you know, all those other jurisdictions, these other um, pieces of legislation that uh, feed into the BCCM Act. I, I, well, a good example mm. of that, Mark, for, for the purposes of, of this discussion is the example <laughs> of the rights and responsibilities of tenants. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, we don't refer to tenants as tenants. We refer to them under the legislation as occupiers. So that's the first issue. Mm. Uh, there is a strong conception in the sector that if you are a tenant, then the body corporate doesn't have any kind of role in dealing with you. That, And I've actually heard body corporate managers say that, mm. no, we don't deal with you because you're a tenant. Uh, my view is quite the opposite of that. Body corporate has responsibilities to all occupiers, regardless of whether they happen to be an owner or whether they happen to be an um, tenant. Uh, the legislation makes a very clear, clear statement about not discriminating simply because somebody happens to be an owner or happens to be an occupier or just, mm. just an inverted, in, in quotation marks, mm. an occupier. There is a lot of work that we try to do in that space. For example, we were, we've done a lot of work with the Residential Tenancies Authority. We're doing something similar with the Real Estate Institute of Queensland. That's a really good example of how we've got this one piece of legislation about body corporate law, and then there are all these other pieces of legislation sitting off it. And again, I come back to a point I made earlier about we're trying to find our way through a bit of a maze here. Mm. So the maze is there for owners, but the maze is also there for tenants as well. And of course, a tenant can bring an application Mm. uh, before the commissioner under the dispute resolution provisions. And uh, that broadens the horizon of the matters that you can have your office dealing with, of course. That's right. And this might be a good time to talk about that too, Mark. So... um, My office exists for two main purposes. Uh, There are other things as well. What we're doing today, this kind of engagement is another. But the two main purposes we have is dispute resolution and information. Mm. Uh, And the Act says that information is actually there to prevent disputes. So that's that. When it comes to disputes, it's all based around the concept that you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and then you've exhausted and you can't go any further. Mm. And my office is effectively not, not, not the last resort per se, but just about the last resort in that sense. So with the exception of a relatively small number of what are called complex matters, Mark, my office will resolve all body corporate, dis- finally resolve all body corporate disputes in Queensland. Mm. There are two main ways that we do that. Uh, we do that via conciliation, and that will be the first step in the vast majority of institutions and Mark, you would be very familiar with that mm. process yourself yes. in, in a past life. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, then if it can't be resolved that way or if it's not appropriate to be resolved that 
way, it'll get resolved by an adjudicator. An adjudicator has what we call quasi-judicial power. So kind of like a magistrate in some respects, an adjudicator makes an order which is then able to be enforced through the magistrate's court. So what I say to people is that you really don't want to get to that step if you don't have to get to that step. Because if you do, we come to the situation where there are winners and losers. So Yeah, yeah. and of course there's, a, there's an understanding that um, before you bring an application that you'll mm. undertake self-resolution. And in mm. fact, um, the practice directions that uh, you've, uh, you've authored, uh, written down, uh, squarely point to an obligation there to undertake a certain amount of self-resolution before you come to the Commissioner's office. That's right, Mark. Mm. Um, And that's a fairly fundamental concept, not just for body corporate disputes, but in a lot of dispute Mm. resolution, that the onus, if somebody feels aggrieved enough to pursue something, it's expected that they will have gone through all the necessary steps to try and resolve it themselves. Mm. One One of the ways of thinking about this is that if... For example, I'm an owner and I want the body corporate to do something. I actually have to tell them. I actually have to make a request or make a demand of them. And then they have to have actually either refused or not responded. Without all those things being satisfied, there simply cannot be a dispute under those circumstances. So uh, that's quite different to, say, for example, lodging a complaint. Uh, There are lots of government agencies which exist to receive and investigate complaints, for example. Uh, Not so my office. We're not there to uh, investigate complaints. We're there to provide a means for resolving things which have not been able to be resolved up until this point. There are various ways and means of doing that. The most simple and I think the most effective is simply talking about it. So, you know, if you can talk about things with your neighbours, with the body corporate, with the other players in the situation and resolve it that way. Of course, some things need to be resolved in writing and it might simply be an exchange of letters and an agreement reached. And then the most obvious other way of resolving a dispute is by putting a motion to a general meeting. The body corporate's general meeting is a decision-making forum That's where, as an owner, if I have an issue, I can put forward a motion, it gets voted on. If it either doesn't carry or there was some irregularity in the process, that's where my office can then step in and offer a means to potentially resolve that dispute. It's an interesting jurisdiction because uh, on the one hand, you have a very black and white, voluminous set of rules and... and, uh, um, pieces of legislation that revolve around body corporates. But then on the other hand, you have this just and equitable jurisdiction Mm. of of the Commissioner's Office, adjudicators making orders that are just and equitable. How do you reconcile those two very uh, diametric uh, concepts there? It's a good good question, Mark. I think, so just to tease that out a wee bit, so a good example of this might be the requirement that there be 21 days' notice of a general meeting. That's there in the legislation. Everybody knows what 21 days is. Away we go. If I get notice within 20 days or 19 days, Mark, technically that's a breach. Mm. Technically something has not been fulfilled under the legislation. However... You need to ask yourself, what is the real difference between 19 days and 21 days? If I haven't been caused any detriment, if the outcome didn't change, then why would an adjudicator of my office necessarily make an order simply because something technical was not followed through with? I think that's an example of what you're talking about there. Mm. Because on the one hand, the legislation says, as you say, Mark, a, B, C, D. Yes. And then the adjudicator looks at it at the alleged breach of A, B, C, D and thinks, well, yes. However, what really went wrong here? Who was caused detriment? What was the outcome? That's where that just and equitable under the circumstances comes mm. into play. So there's a balancing act there. And I think what it reflects, Mark, is the nature of bodies corporate and body corporate disputes. This is not a typical kind of dispute, uh, if you want to think of it in those terms. Say, for example, you have a commercial dispute, a contractual dispute, and it might go to a form of arbitration. Mm. Parties argue their case, judge or arbitrator makes a decision, end of story, away we go, I don't see that person again in my life, quite possibly. Mm. Not so in the body corporate context. If I have a dispute, 
with my next door neighbour over, let's just say, noise, for example, and it gets resolved, that's great. However, I'm going to see them tomorrow in the lift, I'm going to see them in the car park, I'm going to see them at a general meeting. Mm. That's very, very different. And so in my office, we're thinking about the future, the way in which things might be able to get back onto an even footing. So it recognises that if you simply just come in and make a hard and fast decision, uh, that's not necessarily going to be the greatest outcome for everybody in that scheme. Yeah, so essentially it's a almost a tempering of the black letter of the law through this uh, just and equitable jurisdiction. How do you deal with the ongoing um, personal aspect of lot owners. You harped on that a little bit there uh, in terms of it's an ongoing relationship, isn't it, Mm. Uh, that lot owners have with different stakeholders, with their committee members, with their tenants, with Mm. uh, maybe contractors. How do you reconcile that uh, relationship aspect in the decisions that are made there? Sometimes with great difficulty, Mm. Mark. And I think you've hit upon a really good point here that Mm. what we're dealing with here is an unusual mix of things. It's a mix of justice. It's a mix of social aspects. It's a mix. There's an element of housing involved there as well. We're also talking about human behaviour as Mm. well, and there is no way that I'm aware of that human behaviour can be controlled uh, unless the individual wants to control it themselves. Mm. So here we are in a situation where we have a number of people literally living on top of each other in some circumstances, and we are trying to apply a set of rules so that everybody can hopefully, fingers crossed, ideally get along. So... Inevitably, what happens is that there is a personality clash, for want of a better Mm. expression. You've got owner A who just simply does not like owner B. And there could be all manner of reasons for that. Owner B might have done something really offensive somewhere along the line, quite possibly. And that's not great. But at the end of the day, if that's what it is, then that's not what my office is concerned with. My office is concerned with something tangible. So it's not sufficient to say, I don't like owner B and therefore I'm not dealing with them or I'm not going to agree to what they want. It's about specifics. That is probably one of the more challenging aspects because for people who contact my office, particularly those who've never utilised it before or who are not familiar with the way things work, that's an incredibly big challenge because mm. they know there's an issue, they can they can feel that there, there's tension, there's stress, there's, there's distress, there's disquiet, there's upset. So they know all these things are happening but they're not clear about how to resolve it. They're not clear about what the processes are. And so then they come to my office and we say, well, look, obviously something's gone amiss here, but what is the actual issue now? Mm. And so then it's a case of narrowing down the focus. That goes both ways as well. I mean, I've spoken a lot here from the perspective of the owner or the occupier, but that also applies the other way as well from the body corporate. A committee who is finding themselves engaged with a particular owner and and relations with the owner are not great, and there's a lot of animosity between the parties. Well, again, that might be based upon some pretty tangible things to begin with but again we have to narrow it down what is it that this owner is doing or is not doing that we really want to address yeah absolutely challenging uh, area of law because uh, you deal with um, behaviors of lot owners some committees as you know are driven by conflict and uh, uh, those personality issues it's like fitting a square peg in a round hole how do you manage the issue of say lot owners trying to get the outcome but not understanding how to say place emotion or placing emotion that's going to be ruled out of order because it's not valid um uh you've got an information service we do. but uh how do you reconcile those particular issues where there's lack of information there so yeah you're quite right mark so mm-hmm. we have what's called an information and community engagement unit uh the most obvious part of that is our 1800 number and so for those people who are not familiar with it you call the 1800 number you leave a message with a very brief description of your issue 
one of our officers then calls back. The reason why we do it that way is because doing it live is not necessarily the best option in this jurisdiction. It's usually pretty complicated. So to have somebody call back, it also enables my staff to be well equipped to answer the call. If they know what the topic is about in advance, they can go and do their own research as necessary. So we give out general information. While we don't give legal advice and we're not advocacy, one of the things we can and do do, Mark, is what I would call reality testing. Mm. So that's a situation where somebody contacts my office and is quite intent on a particular course of action. My office might do a bit of reality testing with them and we might say to someone, look, I hear what you're saying. I hear that you want to pursue this course of action. I need to tell you that past experience tells us that that course of action is not necessarily the way to go. I mean, a good example of that might be uh, a dispute about pets, for example, Mark, mm. uh, a hot topic and oh, one which, yes. we, which we deal with day in, day out. They're the law... Uh, case law around keeping animals in the community title scheme is actually pretty solidified now. But we still have situations where there might be committees who, on principle, would want to prohibit the keeping of an animal on the scheme. And we might receive a, a call from a committee member saying, what can I do about it? And we would give the information, well, here's how things sit in relation to case law about animals. It might be the case that that committee member says, well, we're still going to plough ahead and we're still going to try and prohibit. At that point, we might do a bit of reality testing and say, look, it's your decision. At the end of the day, I'm here to tell you that adjudicators consistently interpret things this way. If we can save somebody six or nine months and a lot of money and a lot Mm. of time of stress, then I think we should be doing it at that point. Ultimately, though, it's important to remember that we can't stop and we can't tell people what to do people will still go ahead and make their own calls. Yeah, and in regards to pets, of course, there's mm. uh, a multitude of bylaws out there with mm. uh, condition there that uh, it's prohibitive, uh, mm. there's no no pets allowed. What are some of the challenges in uh, a potential applicant bringing an application in, say, that instance? Um, again, we come back to this lack of understanding about what, first of all, what it is that they're seeking. The application itself requires, and this is pretty prescriptive under the legislation, requires at all times the applicant to basically run their case. So it's up to the applicant to to do everything to satisfy the legislative requirements. And while we offer a degree of assistance in that, we're not there to tell people what to do or how to structure things. So in supplying uh, evidence, for example, or making out grounds or narrowing the focus down to a particular outcome, All of those things are incumbent upon the applicant to ensure they've got right. Then there are the really practical and technical aspects. So, for example, it's about naming the correct combination of parties. So, as an applicant, I am limited in who I can name as a respondent to an application. Mm. The legislation actually spells out who can and cannot be. Mm. So, if somebody incorrectly names a respondent, we have to go through that process with the individual, and maybe it won't actually be in jurisdiction at the end of the day. So, that's one aspect. Then there might be a situation where a company, a corporation, is the applicant. So, is somebody properly authorised to speak on behalf of that, if you like, if you want to put it in those terms? There are those technical aspects to it. Then we come down to some more of that reality testing I spoke about earlier. In any kind of bylaw dispute, for example, Mark, we will look for a history or a timeline of events. And if the last action was six months ago, inevitably we're going to ask the question, well, why Why now? Why, why is this being lodged now? There may well be a a pretty good explanation for that, Mark. Here's what's happened in the interim, and then perhaps that can accompany the application. But if there's no clear answer about why that's the case, then the question has to be asked, well, therefore, there can't really be a dispute at this point, can there? So it's it's that mix of very prescriptive requirements and then one or two practical, pragmatic aspects that uh, my office will go through the applicant uh, with. And the information section, uh, the information service of your office, um, what are the challenges in in managing expectations about drawing that line between legal advice and information about the the actual Mm. legislation? Probably the most basic thing I could say there, Mark, is that we can only answer the question put to us. Uh, So if somebody contacts my office and asks for information about something, we'll give an answer. And then it is quite common for perhaps an hour or two later, 
the other side of that story to ring my office. Mm. So in the first instance, an owner rings and says XYZ. We give an answer to XYZ. Two hours later, a member of the committee or the body corporate manager might ring and they would then say to us, oh, um, person X just called and said they've been speaking to you and you had said this. Is Mm -hmm. that right? So it is quite commonplace for us to get... And there are always two sides to every story. For example, it's reasonably commonplace, Mark, for somebody to call our office three or four times a day looking for three or four different offices to get the answer that they want eventually. Mm. I, I, opinion shopping, that's that's human nature. I, yeah. If I was in that position, I'd probably want to do it as well mm. until I got the answer that best suited my purposes. Yeah. What people don't realise is that, first of all, we're a small office, so mm. we can hear those calls, more or less. But secondly, we keep a record. We keep some notes about those calls. And third, and probably most importantly, Mark, uh, one of our big aims in the office is consistency. We want to be able to say to people that regardless of mm, some subtleties in the way in which you've asked the same question, you'll get the same answer. It would be really problematic if we are in the business of answering questions and giving three different answers to the same question. So that consistency of information is probably the biggest challenge, and that's why we are constantly in the business of peer review, of development, of ensuring that we are across the information that we need to give out. And I guess that information um, stems to higher court decisions and making sure that those concepts are feeding down into not only the information service but uh, all the adjudication Mm. decisions. Now, going on to the um, dispute resolution side of things, now you've got conciliation, you've got adjudication, Mm. and then you've got specialist uh, forms of those too. Mm. What's your view in regards to, say, jumping conciliation and moving into adjudication? There, there are certain circumstances where you can do that. That's right. So mm. um, a good example of that is a general meeting decision. We don't typically conciliate a general meeting decision mm. because no one's authorised to speak upon the behalf of the body corporate. So that's why we don't typically conciliate a general meeting decision, but pretty much everything else we would. It's reasonably commonplace for people to make the argument, look, we'd prefer to go straight to the referee and get a decision, or the umpire, if you like. We we want a decision from the umpire, so it's black and white. Appreciate why people would want to do that. There's actually a lot of reasons why conciliation as a first step is far more beneficial and far more... First of all, it's that nature of body corporate disputes I talked about earlier, the fact that these are very different kinds of dispute. It's quicker, for starters, uh, much quicker than an adjudication application, but our conciliators are specifically trained for this purpose. So we get people who say that they don't want to do conciliation because they've tried already to resolve the dispute and it's pointless talking any further. While I get why people would say that, the fact is that conciliation, as it's offered by my office, Mark, is very different to, I think, people's experience of, say, mediation in another context. People have this idea of a mediator. uh, You sit there in the middle of two parties and you hear that side and then you'll hear that side and you'll work together. While that is mostly true of the conciliation process, the key difference here is that conciliators will give information to parties in the process. And indeed, they will actually say to people, no, what you're saying is incorrect, if if it is indeed Mm. incorrect. That can actually be quite confronting for a party who expects a quite classic version of mediation because, no, that's not what you'll get. Mm. My conciliators will say, if you're, for example, if the committee fronts up and says that they're going to do something and the conciliator knows that that's not consistent with the Act, they'll say so. That, can, that committee member might be quite, might say, oh, you know, I wasn't expecting that. That's the whole point of the process, and that's why it is provided as the first step in the vast majority of cases. It is open for people to argue why they should not go to conciliation in the first instance, and that's fine. They can have a go at that, if you like, Mark. It would be a quite rare occurrence for me to say that's fine, I'll waive that requirement. There's a few examples of where that might be the case. If there is a bit of a history between the parties and previous conciliations have gone badly, Mm. that would be a circumstance where we'd look at it and say, you know what, it doesn't really seem like that's going to work. 
even if there is some kind of suggestion of threat or violence between the parties, while that might appear to be a fairly obvious answer as for why conciliation wouldn't happen, we have done in the past and quite successfully gotten an outcome between parties where that has existed in the first place. So I suppose the key thing here, every case is considered on its merits, Mark. We, mm. we look at each case with a fresh pair of eyes. So even though a dispute might sound very similar to a previous dispute we've handled, everything has to be considered on its merits. So a conciliator will be quite directive in their reality mm. testing yep. and really give information about the legislation. Mm. Um, and, of course, what stems from that, if, if the parties are amenable, uh, is a conciliation agreement. That's right. So the agreement... Uh, so the conciliator does a lot of work before the scheduled conciliation conference to get to an agreement, what what that process is called intake, typically. Mm-hmm. Well, they will actually spend time on the phone or via email saying to parties, look, right, here's your dispute. One of the things they might do is provide some adjudicator's orders on that topic to the parties. And sometimes there can be this light bulb moment for the parties when they look at that and they go, oh, oh, okay, right, we're happier to settle now on that basis. Even if that doesn't happen, the conference is scheduled and conferences can occur face-to-face. We can do it via teleconference or we can do it by Skype. So it's quite routine for us to do conciliation with people who live interstate and overseas. Sometimes those uh, conferences can take three, four hours, but the the conciliator will work towards... The, the ultimate aim is to get a result, mm. to get a result. If a result is arrived at, the agreement is drawn up, the parties sign it off, and that's the end of the matter. should clarify, those agreements are not legally enforceable. So if a party does not comply with the conciliation agreement that they entered into voluntarily, then that's really unfortunate if that's the case, and they might have to proceed to adjudication then. I've got to say, though, Mark... Mm. All of our figures and all of our stats suggest that conciliation does have a very tangible result. Up to three, nearly three quarters of all matters at conciliation will result in an agreement. Now, that tells you that the process actually has value and benefit. Yeah, absolutely a powerful process. How do you manage those situations where you've got uh, one party with a legal representation, perhaps? We don't, typically. Mm. So we're not necessarily in the business of having parties being legally represented at conciliation. We just find, again, based upon experience and history, that that may tend to overcomplicate matters. Now, Mm. it can happen. For example, if both parties are legally represented, that might be a bit more palatable in the process. Sometimes a legal practitioner might be involved in preparing uh, a position paper for one of the parties before conciliation, and that might be a really useful device in just focusing attention, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly from the committee point of view, because if it's a dispute between an owner and committee, it's hoped that the committee would come along to that process feeling empowered to sign off on a course of action that everybody agreed to. So if a legal practitioner can be involved beforehand in focusing attention, uh, setting some achievable, reasonable parameters, but the same applies also for the owner as well. Mm. So typically we don't like to have legal practitioners, no no disrespect intended mm-hmm. there, Mark. Yes. It just we just prefer that the parties be involved in that process. Yeah. And uh, in regards to legal representation, say, at adjudication level, when mm. uh, a lot of the work is done on the papers, uh, yeah. so to speak. Um, sure. So, look, to clarify, uh, it's the entire dispute resolution process is set up so that anybody can manage their own case themselves. So it's meant to be a relatively informal process. Mm. I suppose as the years go on, and things get more technical, more complex, and people are more willing to stand up for what they see as their rights and be a bit more litigious, we are increasingly therefore seeing more legal representation. So people don't have to apply to be legally represented like in some other jurisdictions. Mm. They can just simply do that as they wish. Our figures suggest that about a third, if not a little more, of all parties are now legally represented. That has pros and cons in all parts of the process. The pro of that is that if there is a 
complex issue at play in the dispute, it might be easier for the adjudicator to take submissions if both parties are legally represented. Equally, though, that can complicate the process a bit further. Uh, from the perspective where one party is represented and one party is not, I can see why the party who is not might feel a bit you know, not, not as empowered mm. in the process. But the process is still set up in such a way to make it possible for them to participate. Anybody can be legally represented. That's, you know, it's, it's a case-by-case situation. Mm. It really depends on the nature of the dispute. And um, in regards to dispute resolution processes generally, you have a case management arm that uh, will look at all dispute applications. Yeah. Um, perhaps if you go through the process of, of a dispute, perhaps sure. uh, from the uh, inception to the final result there. So we've talked about conciliation, so mm. I won't go back to that. Instead, mm. I'll talk about adjudication. Mm. So let's suppose that conciliation has happened and the agreement didn't get up for whatever reason and the parties go to adjudication. So adjudication is a different process altogether, effectively, even though my office handles it again. It is based purely upon written submissions. So in the first instance, the application is lodged and there are a number of requirements that need to be satisfied about the application. My case management team will look at issues such as jurisdiction. Is this within the appropriate jurisdiction? Along with such fundamental matters is, is it signed? You'd be surprised the number Mm. of things that don't get signed, that get lodged. And is it paid for? And that's a really fundamental aspect of it. Once all of those hurdles are cleared, if you like, the next step in the process is calling for submissions. And this is one of the unique features of the process. An adjudication application, typically every owner in the scheme will be invited to have a say. The reason for that is that there is this inherent assumption, Mark, that any dispute involving a body corporate in some way has the potential to impact everybody. Even if it is just one party versus another, everybody is potentially Mm -hmm. impacted by that issue. So everybody is invited to make a submission. Uh, They don't have to. There's no compulsion to do so. Neither is there any particular guideline about what people should say. So this is probably a crucial thing to note. A person can say whatever they like as part of the adjudication process, but they need to take care about that because all of those submissions potentially are then available afterwards to be searched and to be inspected. So if you are an owner in the scheme and you get invited to make a submission and you decide to use that as your opportunity to fire off all of your uh, accumulated grievances against person X and you decide that you might use a bit of colourful language in that, well, well and good, just bear in mind that at some point somebody else is going to see that and it will be in the public domain. Mm. Once all those submissions come in, the applicant has a right of reply. They don't have to if they don't want to, but more often than not, they will. Mm. It's effectively a process of rebuttal in a lot of cases, but not necessarily always. There might actually be some really relevant points they need to address. At that point, the matter goes to the adjudicator. Now, the adjudicator has some quite broad-ranging investigative powers. Uh, They might ask for further information. They might ask for a specialist report. They might ask to see copies of voting papers. In some cases, uh, an adjudicator might even go and do a personal inspection. doesn't happen very often because, frankly, there are too many disputes for us Mm. to go and do that. It'd be great if we had a fleet of adjudicators who could do that. But, um, you know, in some cases it does happen. In some cases it can actually be really useful because you've got all of this stuff happening theoretically and then if you go and see, you can actually see, you know, see it in action. If the applicant wants to supply further information in that process, they can at the discretion in the first instance of me and in the second instance of the adjudicator. Mm. The onus would be upon them to distribute that information. The adjudicator may then make an order at that point. With that order, the adjudicator provides a statement of reasons, and that statement of reasons becomes one of the more useful tools for everybody in the community title sector because 
doesn't just demonstrate the adjudicator's reasoning of how they came to that conclusion. It actually provides information and gives guidance about how this is likely to proceed in future. Adjudicators take into account uh, not necessarily precedent per se, Mark, but they take into account other adjudicators' orders. They will also necessarily have to have reference to the way in which tribunals and courts have determined appeals as well. So very much like... uh, um a traditional form of uh, of precedent, although it's, it's a quasi-form, isn't it? Uh, of course, a High Court decision will have a very big impact on how an That's adjudicator right. looks at things. And we have had uh, one or two matters make it all the way to the High Court of mm. Australia, Mark, and that, while a person looking in may say, really, a body corporate dispute made it to the High Court of Australia? Is that really necessary? Well, yes, it was in mm. this case. Um The good thing about it, though, it provides some very strong guidance for my adjudicators as to how they should be determining Mm. orders in the future. So in your experience as uh, in the time you've been Commissioner Mm. for Body Corporate and Community Management, how have you found, um, and you talked about rights and Mm. people willing to step up to those rights, how have you found the the increases in in people willing to make applications, um, maybe, maybe some stats. On, on Very that. much so, Mark. Yeah. So we we are seeing a steadily upward trend in the number of applications that get lodged with my office. Last year we had a record year for mm-hmm. applications lodged, but we're already on track to uh, better that if you want to put it in those terms mm-hmm. this year as well. And this kind of highlights a bit of a quirk, I think, about what we do. It's a bit of a double-edged sword because... Part of what I'm doing now with you is that information process, telling people about the services, telling people about how they go about getting outcomes. That's great. However, in doing so, we actually can create more work for ourselves in the process. A good example of this is, say, for example, we do a public seminar and we stand up there and we give information. There might be schemes in Queensland where everybody's been going along in blissful ignorance and literally not Mm. compliant with legislation, in fact, doing things completely wrong. I know because they they tell me about it. I Mm. remember I was at a seminar just recently. Afterwards, somebody came up and said, oh, how often should we be holding an annual general meeting? had to think about that for a minute and I said oh every year and the person said oh we've been holding ours every two I said oh okay it really should be every year and then I paused and I said but I won't know if it's going to be every two (laughs) because there's nobody corporate police so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the instant I go out there or any one of my staff go out and corrects a misunderstanding it might actually create another dispute because mm. if, if you're in a scheme and everything's been fine, then you have no reason to dispute anything. The instant you're told that something you have been doing is not correct, then you start to think to yourself, well, what else is not correct here? Yes. And then that can actually cause a dispute. Um, anecdotally, we know this is the case. If we ever go out and do a dispute in a particular region, in the week or two afterwards, we see a little bit of a spike in the number of calls that we get and people following that up. So double-edged sword, we give out information, but that can actually lead to more disputes. So what does that mean? Should I guess it's about balance. Mm. It's about a balanced message for that, for that matter, Mark. What is it that I'm trying to say here? And I'm trying to say to people, look... We're here to provide services. There is a very, very uh, prescriptive framework for you to comply with. Go ahead, give it your best shot in all cases. If you really, really, really can't proceed any further, we'll offer you some assistance. Um, at the end of the day, though, I, I would, it would, in an ideal world, Mark, we wouldn't exist at all. In an mm. ideal world, we would be out of a job because there would be no need for us because everyone would resolve their own disputes and they would be 100% super informed and away they go. But that's not reality in this situation. Yeah, absolutely challenging uh, jurisdiction. So in those increasing uh, amounts of applications you're, you're getting, and again this year it's going to be a record year it seems, what are some of the prominent issues you're finding in those in those applications? The main issue, I think, both across adjudication and conciliation applications is maintenance. And that can be boiled mm-hmm. down to the who is responsible for this maintenance. Is it mm-hmm. the owner or is it the body corporate? 
Sometimes the legislation is pretty clear. Sometimes the legislation is not clear. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is every scheme in Queensland is different, is built differently. And there are so many times when we see and hear about a building which has got a quirk in the way it is constructed or the way it is titled. And it's like, oh, well, you know, everything that we know to be the case about responsibility for maintenance is suddenly ambiguous in this situation. So that's usually the biggest issue. And I understand, and it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you've got one party that says, I think you should be responsible. And the other party says, well, no, I think you're responsible. Somebody has to resolve that eventually. So that's that one. We touched upon animals and pets before. That is a really significant component of our dispute resolution processes. And that makes a lot of sense because pets produce very emotive responses in people one way or the other, either pro or con. Then there are issues more generally about bylaws, uh, bylaw disputes in relation to vehicles, whether that be parking or use of vehicles on common property is a significant issue. The other uh, dispute type that we see a lot of, Mark, is just about the way in which a general meeting is run. It's, again, a very convoluted, prescriptive process in some Mm -hmm. cases to conduct a meeting. And if people are trying to do that, it's almost inevitable that they're going to make a mistake. Mm. And even if they didn't intend it, Mark, uh, they find themselves having either not given the right notice, not tallied votes correctly, not received nominations correctly, not recorded minutes correctly, not received secret ballots, not proxies weren't assigned properly, corporate nominees weren't... Uh, on and on and on it goes. So that's one of the big issues. And I'm not really sure how anyone ever gets around that as a dispute area mm. because it's just so prescriptive that there's all of these requirements about notice and the way in which people are meant to engage. They're mm. the big issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis in the office. Mm. And, of course, um, it seems that prescriptiveness or the level mm. of prescriptiveness prescriptiveness there is geared around ensuring that uh, the rights of owners are protected Uh, but uh, of course then uh, you've got third parties that are managing those Mm. uh, particular processes like body corporate managers, returning officers, it gets quite complex so uh, in terms of the inevitability of non-compliance I guess in some cases it does open up Pandora's box doesn't Mm. it? Uh, Yeah it does look I I mean there was actually uh, a decision of a court in which this was actually stated that the that I, I can't remember which case it was but the or the exact words but the essence of the of the words in the judgment were the complexity of this legislation is such that non-compliance is almost inevitable mm. then it's about the degree of non-compliance so again we come back to this issue was there a fairly minor technical thing is that of itself sufficient reason to overturn the outcome? Mm. We're in the business of trying to give people the accurate information about how to do things so that that can be avoided. Even then, you know, it relies upon people carrying that out to the letter of the law. Not always is going to be the case. It just can't be. Mm. So I, I guess I, I said before that in an ideal world, we simply wouldn't exist and we wouldn't have a job. That's probably never going to happen, though, mm. because of the nature of the legislation that people are asked to comply with. And again, mm. you overlay that human nature element over the top of it. So you've got a particular process prescribed. It's quite technical. Even if you manage to get through all of that and comply with everything precisely you've then got the human element to deal mm. with after that. And people make mistakes. Even if people don't make mistakes, they might forget something mm. or they might inadvertently do something. That's even before you get to the idea of deliberately not mm. doing something. Mm-hmm. So as I, I come back to that statement before about the unique mix of social and justice and housing and human behaviour here. We're trying to address all of that in one great big mass. And, yeah. yeah, and and certainly the whole nature of those aspects is embedded in the, the name itself, community titles mm. and schemes, and That's you're right. dealing with communities, mm. and, and those come in many different shapes and forms. So how do you see the forthcoming law reforms impacting on the Commissioner's Office? It's a great question, Mark, and the answer is it's very hard to know at this stage. So, uh, I mean, 
The legislation has been under review, uh, what's called the Property Law Review, and that's been managed by the Queensland University of Technology. A number of recommendations have been made and and the ball is back with the government to decide Mm. what they're going to do with different recommendations in different spaces. I suppose from my point of view, Mark, what I always look at is will any recommendation add to the work that we already do or will it actually simplify in Mm -hmm. some cases it'd be great if there'd be a simplification or it actually took away Mm. a need for us to do something in a situation where a legislative reform added a new kind of dispute or a new combination of parties to a dispute or open things up to potential for more disputes that's where things get particularly uh, relevant for me because Mm. I'm in the business of providing service. We, we are a service delivery entity. We're in the business of providing people services and we need to be able to be responsive to people's needs. If demand is increased by a change in legislation and not necessarily just out of this review, there could be other pieces of legislation which get changed, which have an impact, we need to be able to respond to that. Yeah, um, certainly a challenge if uh, the jurisdiction is broadened mm. and uh, you need to handle disputes from a different, yes. or previously handled by a different jurisdiction. Guessing this is where collaboration perhaps with the delivery of education, mm. with peak bodies and and networking out with the community uh, plays a big role. That's right. Yeah, really good point, Mark. Look, so I'm in the business of collaboration with the stakeholders. Uh, at all times, we're impartial, so we're not there to advocate for the rights of owners of over committees or committees over owners, for example. We're there to try and step our way through it quite equitably. So I have worked with and my office has worked with a whole range of parties. Again, uh, we're in the business of sending out a message or a series of messages. And the reality of the situation is if we work with uh, an entity, be it profit or not-for-profit entity, we're going to reach more people than we could probably reach ourselves. That's just the way it mm. is. So that's why we routinely uh, collaborate with body corporate managers, legal practitioners, stakeholder bodies, peak bodies to try and deliver that message. And then we try and tailor it to suit the audience that we're mm. reaching. Is this information germane mainly for owners? Are we now trying to reach managers? Mm. Are we now trying to reach just legal practitioners? So um, that is one of the essential parts of my role in particular, Mark, is to do that kind of work. As I said right at the start, trying to balance all of those interests is a tough job because they're all so different. So I'm not necessarily in the business of trying to keep everybody happy. What I am in the business, though, is trying to keep everybody on more or less an even keel and try and sort of give the same kind of responsiveness to everybody and to try and be responsive to their needs as well. So, you know, I, I see a really big role for us to collaborate with a whole range of parties to get that message out there. And it's, I guess it's a bit like, I guess it's a bit of quid pro quo in a way. Look, we will give you this information, we'll give you these resources, and in return we would hope that you take our message and send it out there accurately and to as many people as possible. Mm. So um, your office is is absolutely dealing with a lot of moving parts, mm. a lot of stakeholders, uh, a lot of competing issues and, and a changing fabric of the law. Uh, yep. What would you say are some best practice tips to, say, a lot owner interacting with the Commissioner's Office if they have an issue or a dispute at hand? Probably um, the big tip, I would say, is narrow the focus. So... Rather than present with a shopping list of outrages and grievances and issues, let's think very clearly about what it is that you could get out of this interaction that's going to have a tangible benefit for you. So if you have a shopping list of 10 issues, and well, okay, are all 10 of those really important? Or are there actually two of them that you really need resolved right here and now? If that's the case, let's narrow our focus to try and resolve those issues. Rather than present to my office with a 10-year history of everything that's gone wrong at your scheme, let's focus on the here and now. What is the problem right now? 
that could we could potentially assist with. So that narrowing the focus and that then enables us to narrow our response as well and provide our, hopefully an outcome. Um, so that's one issue. The second issue uh, is about communication, I guess, Mark. You, know, mm. you hit upon it just before. There's the community aspect. You are living in a community like it or not you've got people next to you on top of you beside you you're having to make group and joint decisions so remember that you're in a community if you're in a community the best way forward is to actually talk about it discuss the issue uh if you're you know if you've got a problem with your neighbor you don't just immediately go to the last resort speak to them try and get them to understand your point of view and you might actually be surprised about how successful that is going to be. But do so from an informed perspective. Don't go out and sort of suggest to people that they should be doing one thing when an actual fact the legislation says something else. Get yourself informed, then start to initiate a process to try and get to some common ground. And it's also about giving a little as well. You, you can't just be in the position where you're constantly demanding, demanding, demanding. You've got to give as well because, again, you're in a community. Hmm. And interesting, you should mention Common Ground. Hmm. Uh, in fact, that's one of the uh, publications that come out of uh, the Commissioner's Office. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, yeah, it's well picked up. Yeah, so look, our Common Ground newsletter goes out on a fairly regular basis now. We've got, I think at last count, three to 5,000 subscribers, so not bad. It would be great hmm. to have a few more. We use that for two purposes. So we do a fairly regular bulletin where we pull together a range of pieces but then we also use it for specific purposes. And one of those purposes might be to advertise a webinar or a series of seminars that we've got coming up. That's a way in which people can stay engaged about developments from my office's point of view. Very easy to subscribe. It just keeps you informed in the process. That will be our primary method for pushing information out mm. to people. So what's the best way for someone who's interested, someone who's listening to maybe subscribe to that uh, come, come to the website, first of all, www.qld.gov for Victor, .au forward slash body corporate. Uh, or if you like, give us a call, 1-800-060-119 uh, if you're having any issues with that or indeed just for general body corporate information. But I'd be suggesting people go to the website first. The website is really extensive. There are a lot of resources on that website. We have on there, one of the things that might be of interest to people is a module for people to train to be a committee member. Now, you might say, oh, but I'm not on a committee. That's true. The information on there, though, remains relevant whether you're on the committee or not. It actually takes you through a series of questions designed to test your knowledge. So... That information and that process is germane to everyone, I'd suggest. Oh, absolutely. And I've uh, certainly had a chance to look at mm. those materials and they're wonderful and very, very informative. Thanks, Mark. Uh, we will certainly put up those links and information on, on the Let's Talk Strata website as well uh, for interested owners. So um, where do you see the Body Corporate Commissioner's Office uh, moving towards in the next 12 to 24 months? I think increasingly we're going to be offering our services uh, this way, Mark. So the traditional methods will still be there and still be available. So those tra I know that a lot of the clients that we deal with like face-to-face -face interactions. They like to hear a message delivered by a human being. I get that. And that's never not going to be offered, I would suggest. And a lot of people like the, the hard copy. And so, again... That will never not be the case. But I think increasingly we're going to offer it like this, Mark. We're going to offer these kinds of services which are available digitally, which we can push out through a variety of platforms and a variety of channels and a variety of stakeholders for that matter mm. to, re to continue to widen the audience to make sure that we're fulfilling our mission if you like so that's mm. one aspect of it um i'm looking you mentioned uh, the work i did at university earlier this year i'm looking to roll out some of the reforms of that there's a lot i won't sort of bore everybody listening to it now but mm. there's a lot of work that gets done around things such as behavioral economics why do people act the way they do mm. particularly when they're engaging with a government department is there actually a way that we can influence and adjust their behaviour? All of the literature suggests that there is, Mark, but 
we've highlighted a number of obstacles for doing so mm. in this jurisdiction. So I think that's going to be work, though, that we increasingly will need to get into to better understand who our client base is and then to better understand how they engage with us. It's not just a passive thing. It's not us sitting there in our ivory tower in Brisbane saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. No, it's us providing a range of services for people to pick and choose from as they need to. And then it's about them coming back to us and telling us how we could be doing things differently or better. It's that 360 model of, of clients interacting with us and us being responsive. I, can, I think that's where we mm. go to from here, Mark. Yeah, and certainly something that, uh, you know, I really see as incredible positive about, about your office is the progressiveness and the willingness to, to interact mm. and reach out and educate. Uh, all those things are, are, you know, a real asset to Queenslanders across the board. Uh, and it's a growing uh, uh, body of, uh, of stakeholders, it is. isn't it? Is. It? it is. Yeah. Uh, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you uh, uh, discuss matters that relate to your office the challenges the the matters that influence body corporate law and um, and of course all the moving parts that you have to deal with we certainly look forward to having you on board uh, again to perhaps discuss some more um, particular matters but it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, you know I, I do believe lot owners and anyone interested in in strata related matters uh, will have got so much out of today's discussion thanks so much mark pleasure thank you again that's it Thanks for listening to the very first episode of the Let's Talk Strata podcast. Tune in with us at letstalkstrata.com.au for your fortnightly dose of Strata insights and stimulating discussion with leading Strata professionals. Next week, you'll hear from our guest, John Marnie of Marnie's Lawyers, who'll talk about his expertise and experience in management rights from the perspective of the body corporate, caretaker and occupiers.